Hello, tribe. How are you today? I hope you're doing fantastic wherever you are in this beautiful planet. And thank you for tuning in, Life on Earth podcast. I think you'll learn a lot and be inspired by today's guest, Amy Thomas. She is a scientist, a biologist, a professor at Loyola University in New Orleans, among many other things which this incredible woman is creating and contributing to our planet. In this episode, we talk about preservation of our planet, climate changing, simple and effective exercises that you can do to connect with nature, NDD, nature deficit disorder, and much more. So heads up, we recorded this in my house, in the living room of my house, and I served tea during this episode. So you will hear the sound of the cattle and um, boiling water. And that's what that is. And you might even hear my dog barking here and there. So join us wherever you are. Take a deep breath. Exhale. Relax. And let the wind blow on your face. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Life on Earth, the Peace Project. A podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature, and ultimately, love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace, and global equality, one earthling at a time. Welcome to Life on Earth podcast. I'm super excited about this episode today. Thank you, Amy, for being here. I have Amy with me. How are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? Amy Thomas. Yes. Yes. Did I pronounce right? Or uh, how you're do close. you? M-A is how I pronounce M-A. it. That yes. I always like to ask. So how do you pronounce yeah. your full name? M-A Thomas. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, we met at Nature Audubon Institute. We were both doing a women's retreat, and it was wonderful. It was a pleasure to meet you. And from the time we spent together there, I just knew I had to have you on the podcast. So I appreciate you know you coming over and making the time. Absolutely, to I'm do always this. excited to talk about nature and how yeah. I got into it. And then we get to share this with you guys, the listeners. Um, and just so you know, we're sitting at my house and we're about to have some tea. We're uh, with the tea ceremony preparation. Today's tea, it's a ware tea that we're drinking from Global Tea Hut. Yeah, that's what we're drinking. So anyways, so you guys might hear some of the tea ware going up and down. But And my dogs are around too, so <laughs> that's that. So what do you do? Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, first, I'll also add that we're sitting in this incredible craftsman, what is it, a raised basement home in New Orleans, and it is a beautiful day, and the scenery in here is just peaceful. So, and that's great because we're going to be talking about nature, and um, what I do today is... Thank you. Yeah, sure. So... I am a biologist, and I'm a professor at a university in New Orleans. It's Loyola University, New Orleans, and I've been here about seven years now. I absolutely love it, and what I'm currently doing with my work is promoting environmental awareness with my students, and so we um, study natural history of invertebrate species. We do all kinds of research on invertebrate species, 
And what we do is we take that information and we hope to effectively communicate the science and what we've learned with people uh, throughout the community, throughout the world. You know, I mean, that, that's getting big there throughout the world, but we try to let people know about the work that we're doing. And so one big aspect of an education at Loyola is to be able to effectively communicate and critically think. So we try to do that in our work. Um, we also are doing a lot of education outreach, and I'll give you some examples of what we're doing. But um, the other thing that, that I try to do, because I have a background in biology and science education, is try to use what are called effective pedagogies. And what that is, is effective means for that communication, effective ways of teaching other people how they can take in the knowledge that we're obtaining through our research, and then hopefully incorporate it into their everyday lives and learn why it's important. Why is environmental awareness, that's a big buzzword. Why is that important? Why do we care about it? So Primarily, I focus on local and tropical spiders with, with my natural history research. <laughs> yeah. um, so we'll talk about a lot of those different things if, if you're interested and if yeah. your listeners are interested in it. But I'll just give you a couple of examples of some projects that we're doing right now mm-hmm. with this work. We have spent the last year studying the flora and fauna, so the plants and the animals of New Orleans City Park, wow. which a lot of people don't realize is 1,300 acres. That's bigger than Central Park in New York City. And um, so it's the fourth largest city park in the country. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, and um, so what we're doing is we're trying to, we were asked to help them figure out what kinds of plants and animals are in the park and in what areas so that they can make uh, better management decisions about planning different areas. So there are a lot of areas in the park that are dedicated to uh, athletics. So there's a tennis center. There is um, There are sports fields. There are areas that are dedicated just to nature. There's a couturier forest, which is a great hot spot in the middle of the city that people come from all over the world to look at birds, especially during migration times in the fall and in the spring. And uh, there are these prairies, so natural grasslands, lots of diversity. You know, there are different wetlands in there. And so what we're hoping to do by the end of this project is let the park know what kinds of critters, we'll just call them, Mm -hmm. and plants are there so that they can know how to better give the the park to the public. You know, what does the public want? What do they want to see? Do they want nature? Do they want sports? And of course, we know that Everyone wants something a little bit different. So we're trying to help them with those decisions. It's been a great, fun project. I've had several students doing research on it. Mm -hmm. We rode around on golf carts the other day and looked at the built structures on the golf course, which was highly touted and opposed by a lot of environmentalists locally, which, you know, is, is something that we all support, but the park needs to generate revenue. So what I try to do is take a step back and realize, all right, it's not great for the environment to have a golf course because not only are you clearing out plants, you have all these pesticides and and things to keep to maintain the grass, but yet the park needs money to be able to maintain natural areas. So it's a balance, and some so that people makes aren't real sense. happy with that, and um, some okay. people aren't real happy with the na- natural areas. So what we try to do is figure out if the plants and animals are occupying all the spaces. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a give and take. Yeah, you we, have to we, absolutely. allow it. So. Yeah, we've, we've done a couple of um, what we call citizen science 
outreach events where we've opened it up to the public to come and help us. And we've had experts from Audubon Insectarium, from local institutions, some former students of mine that are now professors from Southeastern, places at uh, high schools in Jackson, Mississippi. So we've had people come in. Of course, Loyola University um, scientists have helped us and all of our students get involved. It's been incredible. We've worked with over 500 people on these citizen science events. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, you're very committed to the environment and you're, you, you have a long history with Audubon too, or the Nature Institute. Yes, definitely. I want you at some point to tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Too. One of the things that we yes. enjoyed together at the um, Women in Nature Retreat was being immersed in a, an urban forest in mm-hmm. New Orleans East. And um, for those of you who have followed the news and followed environmental issues in our city, know that that was one of the, it's a low-lying area, formerly a wetland that has been drained over the years. And so the low-lying part, it's close to the Gulf of Mexico. It, it was inundated with lots of water during Katrina from the, the water intrusion from the Gulf and also from um, just seepage areas, levees breaking and things like that. Mm-hmm. So this institute, um, this Audubon Institute Nature Center was just destroyed. And along with the actual building that was destroyed, so were the woods. And um, so slowly since 2005, there have been organizations and different volunteer groups that have tried to remove all of the invasive trees like Chinese tallow tree and replant what would have been there and what is native to our area. So cypress trees and uh, different kinds of species that would have been in that area ahead of time, uh, before at that time. So that's what's happening. That's good so, to know because yeah. I wasn't fully aware of that, but it looks amazing now. It looks amazing now. And the building has, um, with the help of some, some FEMA funding, has been rebuilt. Audubon opened up a soft opening um, in the past year. And so right now it's open to the public for free. Teachers can take their students out there. Families that's can cool. come. And it's just a great way to be in your own city but immersed in nature. Mm -hmm. And there are alligators, there are snakes, of course there are Mm -hmm. spiders, there are all kinds of birds out there. And every time I go out there, there's more and more organisms that we hear, we see, we're surrounded with. And so that event that we participated in was incredible. And the meditation that you did and the yoga that we performed and just the discussions that we had being outside it just takes you to a different place. Nature yeah. is amazing in that way and that it can take you back to something that may be from your childhood or something that you've experienced in your life by being outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think being out there is what helped form what I do now. So tell us about your story. Like you were a child, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what was happening? Was it because of your family? Yeah. Or? So um, so my parents got their PhDs at Texas A&M. And when they were finishing up, my mom got the first job offer. So we came to New Orleans and she was a professor at the University of New Orleans for 30 plus years. Um, I think it's 38 years to be exact and retired recently. But so we came here for that. And then my dad did a postdoc at LSU. And right when he was finishing up his postdoc, he interviewed and applied for a job as the founding director of the Louisiana Nature Center is what it was called at the time. So this was in the early 80s. It was started by um, the Junior League of New Orleans wanting to raise funds and have 
nature opportunities for people in New Orleans East and, of course, throughout the greater New Orleans region. So he was hired on, and he helped create the the center, all the programming, and he was there for the first half of his career. So as young kids, my sister, my brother, and I often went along with dad to work, (laughs) and uh, because he was raising money, putting a lecture together, uh, teaching people about nature, whatever he was doing, you know, that adults do as naturalists, we would just explore. We would explore the woods. We would explore the center and all of the exhibits. And uh, we would just, of course, there were no iPhones. There were no iPads. So um, the computers were just coming around. So we didn't have all that. So we just created forts and we walked around and you know, did what kids do. And uh, one of the really things that stuck with me, it just resonated, was there was a loft upstairs in the building. And this loft was called the Discovery Center. And so it was a place for people to go and do exactly that, discover things. And one of the exhibits that I found to be just interesting because it was slightly scary Mm -hmm. and yet always fascinating was this one area where you put your hand behind a um, just a, a, a sheet. Okay. And behind that sheet, there were objects. And you it taught you to use your senses or the sense of touch and, and smell sometimes, but yeah. really the sense of touch, um, instead of relying on your eyes mm-hmm. or hearing um, at this point. And you would stick your hand in there and just feel things and try to recognize what the object was. And the really cool thing about it is, from alert, now that I know pedagogy yeah. and how we learn, of course, I didn't know this at the time, but now when you're doing that, you're making connections with things that you know, and yet you're, so you're making those connections. It's kind of like the scientific process. You make the connection of what you know, and then you try to figure out things you don't know. And so you think and you imagine and you, do whatever you can do to figure out what the object is without looking at it. Mm-hmm. And so when you finally do remove it after guessing what it is, yeah. you know, either you've supported your hypothesis if you <laughs> want to think of it that way, or of course I didn't think of it that way then, yeah. but that's what you were doing, or you refuted it and you're like, oh gosh, what is this thing? I need yeah. to learn about this. And so and and they were always rotating what was in there. So there was always something new, like a pine cone or I love um, that. just brain coral, you know, yeah. anything. It, yeah. it just teaches you to use your senses differently. Yeah. And that's a big thing that I do today with my work and I try to look at things from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so using all your senses as a biologist, as a naturalist, is important. Oh, yeah. Oh, Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. We're she drink- just served us tea, and yes. it looks fantastic. We're drinking some tea. We're going to take a sip. <laughs> mm. Wow. It's amazing, right? Ah, yum. It's like earthy. Yes. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, we've, we've had a whole podcast on tea ceremony before, so they know. So yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So you grew up, so you have this whole relationship and that's where you think that it sparkle the, what you do yeah. now. Um, I mean, so there's that. And then also at our house, because my dad's a biologist and my mom 
allowed us to do this free thinking is what it's called now, you know, go outside and just explore. You know, we were the, we were the childhood, I'm 45. So we were the childhood that we went outside and, and you didn't come home till the streetlights came on. We came home when it got dark or when we got hungry, which as a kid, you never get hungry. You know, your parents have to tell you it's time to eat. And so we would go outside and explore it. In our, the side of our yard, I remember distinctly to this day, we had loose soil, so kind of sandy soil. It wasn't clay at all. So we were able to dig. And so I'm, I'm sure there's a couple of spoons, one or two spoons that we took from the house, um, still in the side yard of my parents' house because they still live where I grew up. Mm-hmm. But we would dig tunnels and forts and we would find roly polies and we would make these trails for mm-hmm. roly polies and we would have cars and we would have the cars go through the tunnels. Oh, wow. Just little things like that. I'm sure along the way we were picking up grub worms and earthworms and, and using leaves to, you know, create, um, pillows or whatever we were doing. So all of those things, I think they just resonated and they just made me think differently. And I've always thought a little bit differently than my friends. I have found that. Um, And when I was younger, that kind of was weird to me. But now as an adult, of course, I embrace it because I'm able to see things from different perspectives. That's amazing. That That is really amazing. So if we had to ask you, what, why is it so important to pay attention to the environment, to take care of the environment? Gosh, I mean, there's that, some obvious reasons, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. Well, there's Sometimes a, there's a, go ahead. we just need to be yeah. reminded as well. Yeah. So, but as a scientist and as a biologist, what do you think? Yeah, so um, that there's a whole lot to that question. Yeah. So let me see, it, and help <laughs> me stay on track if I get mm. off track, because... One of, one of the quotes I like to use, I'll just throw this in here right now, um, and I still use it in my classes today, is by Albert Einstein. He said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Yes. And one of the things that scare people from science is that they're, they think it's all facts. And while there are a lot of facts involved with science and understanding science, where the discovery comes in is in the imagination. If you can imagine it, you can ask questions about it. You can hypothesize things about it. You can experiment and you can collect data and uh, analyze data and make new discoveries. So it's the big picture of with scientists and, and more specifically, I'll focus on the science that I do because there's so many disciplines of science, but this environmental awareness, we have to be able to make observations. We have to be able to compare things as they are today with things as they were in the past. When you hear the buzzword of climate change, and then we have like two snow days like we did in New Orleans, all the naysayers who don't necessarily understand what climate change means, you know, say things that show me they don't really understand the science or the whole concept. They say, oh, really? Global warming's a real thing, and yet we're having snow and ice in New Orleans? Well, yeah, I mean, climate change is just that. It is a, it's a change. It's a shift. It's a natural shift that has happened over millennia based on fossil record and evidence that we have to support it. But the thing that's scary right now and that we need to pay attention to with the environment is that humans are accelerating the rate at which the earth is heating. And so by our removal of fossil fuels at a rate that we're doing it, and not replenishing those fuels is causing rapid changes, like rapid ice melt, um, glacier melt. Now, glaciers melt every year. That is a fact. We know that. That happens. 
and the melt of the glaciers on land versus in the water is a little bit different. One of them is more severe than the other based on the amount of water that is there. But the rate at which it's happening more and more every year is what's alarming. And so you can look at, there's a place in Hawaii, um, on I believe it's on Maui, maybe the Manoa field station, where um, scientists have been monitoring carbon dioxide emissions um, every day for the past 40 or 50 years. And you can look at those kinds of data and see the acceleration of the carbon dioxide release. And do you know about why we would monitor carbon dioxide release? No, tell us. Well, if you think about just to make it as basic and simple as possible, animals, Mm -hmm. when we respire, we go through the whole process of of, uh, cellular respiration, respiring, breathing, going through all the the processes that our bodies have to do to in order to perform every function. Okay, so I'll just try to keep it as basic without getting too deep into it. We take in oxygen. We inhale. We exhale. We release carbon dioxide. And that gets into our lungs, that gets into our blood, that gets into every single cell in our bodies to help with those processes. So the short story with that is that we're releasing this carbon dioxide. That's natural. Animals have been doing that forever. The plants, on the other hand, do just the opposite through the process of photosynthesis, Mm -hmm. which is the process that they go through in order to make their food and produce the energy that they need to exist and Mm -hmm. to live. So they take in the carbon dioxide and they release the oxygen through their process of respiration. So in concert, we balance each other out pretty much. I mean, in theory, right? So it's not just the plants. Algae do this as well. They're a big, big contributor to that. I can't leave my phycology friends out of this. (laughs) Um, So the problem is, is as we're looking and monitoring the rate of change of carbon dioxide, we're cutting more and more trees. If we're cutting more and more trees and using up and burning more and more of the fossil fuels, which... I'm not sure how many people know, fossil fuels are former plants. They are uh, ferns and other um, seedless, non-vascular type plants, mosses and things like that, that were alive millions of years ago. And when they die, they compact and they compact and they compact. And eventually they compact so much, they become compressed and they become hardened. And we pull them out of the earth Um, We dry them, and then we burn them as fossil fuels. Mm. So that's one way in which we get fossil fuels. That's not all the ways, but that's one way. So if we think about that, those plants are no longer taking in carbon dioxide. They're now releasing the carbon dioxide they've sequestered for millions of years. Mm. I don't mean to depress everyone, but those are... If you understand that science and then you think about the impact that we're making with just that one example Mm -hmm. of how we're um, using up fossil fuels and releasing different chemicals like carbon dioxide at a faster rate, then we, we need to step back and say, oh, maybe we are contributing. Another thing just to add here, I'm a scientist, right? So I want to support and qualify what I say with data. For naysayers, all you have to do is look at the uh, progression of not only human growth 
since the Industrial Revolution, but also our emissions since the Industrial Revolution. And so they've just skyrocketed. The Industrial Revolution afforded a lot of positive things. And one of those positive things is humans living longer. Okay. Well, when you get to seven plus billion people on a planet, <laughs> you know, you have to think about all the resources and yeah. that are, we're using up more rapidly. So I'll kind of end that conversation with a positive spin because I'm a positive person and I don't want to be doom and gloom. Yeah. The thing that we can do is we can just be aware of this and not only be aware of it, but start reducing our emissions and start reducing the impact that we're leaving on this earth in a lot of ways. One way to reduce the impact is plant native species in your yard. Uh, The native species are equipped to live in your area. There's a reason they're native. They thrive in your environment. It doesn't matter if you live in upstate New York or, or south Louisiana. They're equipped to live. They've adapted over millennia to live in that environment. So we can do that. We can walk more, and that's better for us anyway. Um, we can ride a bike more. We can turn the lights off when we leave. If, if there's beautiful day like we have today in New Orleans, open up your shutters and, and let the natural light in and, and turn your lights off. Um, yeah. It makes you happier anyway. There's actually data yeah. to support that. <laughs> I love that when you talked about uh, when we were, you know, in our women's retreat about keeping the doors uh, of your house open and the windows open and how much we stay inside mm-hmm. buildings and how much even when we're in our house and we have the choice to open doors and windows, a lot of times pe- I find that we're confined in, in the AC, you know, and so... What happens with that is that then we get completely disconnected from Earth. And and then the term grounding, too, that it's so important to even put your bare foot on mm-hmm. the ground. It's so important to... I don't know where I was reading on the Internet you, uh, recently that kids are losing this ability and they were talking particularly like around you know where I live and I mean in, in the planet like in the United States so to play with dirt like you were saying and to to really go outside and to enjoy that in nature because how important is that I mean if we are always going to be inside a building and if we're not going to be you know allowing the cycles of the day day and night and and also the seasons and the all of that to happen, then we get disconnected from our true nature, mm-hmm. which is, you know, we are earthlings. I mean, we are creatures from this planet. We need that. Like yes. our body, our system needs that as well. I think our minds need it. Yeah, our a mind. Lot too. Yeah. And like me, for example, I teach yoga and it's all about the connection of body, mind, spirit. Mm-hmm. So the I am interested in healing the totality of a human you know, of a person or any being, like healing comes from inside out, not from opposite. Well, so, so say again, so you're interested in healing. healing. The totality, okay. entirely. Mind. Body, body mind, spirit. Spirit. Yes. All of those things you get in nature. When yeah. you walk outside, and, and this is something I shared with you at that retreat, and I'll, I'll say it here for your listeners, every morning, get assuming I wake up in time. <laughs> yeah. So let's say 90% of my mornings when yeah. I'm working, I, I fix my coffee. I'm a, a coffee drinker. Yeah. Um, although this tea that we're enjoying right now is fantastic. <laughs> I wish you all could, uh, could taste it. Um, I get my coffee and I immediately go out into my backyard. The first thing I do is I feed my turtles. 
Second thing I do is I feed my birds. You so have I put turtles. The, I do have turtles. Yeah, I love yeah, I turtles. Have, I do. Um, and so I feed my my birds outside, and uh, and the squirrels show up. So it's okay. I learned from my dad that we we should call it a wildlife feeder because you're never going to keep the squirrels and and other things off of it, right? So I feed my critters in my yard, and then I feed my soul. And what I mean by that is I walk to the other side of my yard, and I'm lucky. In New Orleans, not many people have a nice <laughs> yard with grass because yes. uh, our lot lines are pretty small. Um, but I do. I'm lucky that I have a yard. And I walk in my grass without shoes on. And I check out my labor of love, which is my garden, um, flowers, uh, vegetables, depend on the season. And if they need water, I go to my rain barrel. I fill up my, my bucket and I give them a little bit of water. But what it does for me, first of all, it gets my body going. So there's the healing part. You know, as we get older, it, you know, your bones creak, your joints creak a little bit more. So it gets you going in the morning. It allows my mind to wake up and it allows me to make these observations and notice things that might be different from the day before, from the season before. You know, in New Orleans, we don't necessarily have four seasons like people do in the Northeast of the United States, mm-hmm. uh, but we do notice a lot of change in our in our yards and in our ecosystem. So I just, uh, I try to look at that. I, I notice the butterflies that have shown up that I haven't seen yet that season. I try to see if there's a, a, a number of bees on my mm-hmm. uh, pollen. And I just walk around and just try to relax. And um, this, a couple of years ago, I had a, an injury to my arm playing tennis and uh, then a subsequent back injury, which is why I'm trying to sit up straight as I can. Um, but I, what I also find is that this helps me with my posture because I'm conscious of being outside. I'm conscious with my breath. I'm conscious with all these things. And I think in the end, it, it feeds my soul. I really do. And, and it gets my mind ready for the day. I love what I do. So I can't say that I dread, I don't dread going to work. I never dread going to work. And that's a big part of it too. You know, find Mm -hmm. something that you love and that you don't feel like you're going to work every day, but it helps everything ready. Yeah, I certainly can tell that you do not dread to go to (laughs) work. not at all. (laughs) I love that you mentioned that. I recently... Recently, I got some chickens, and it, it's just so amazing. There's a, that say, wait, I mean, in Portuguese, there's a say, like, acordando com as galinhas, which means, like, waking up with the chickens. Do they have that here in, the, in, the, in English? Do they have that? Well, you know, it's we're just, in the city, so, yeah, no, but when yeah, I travel to the that. tropics, you absolutely <laughs> wake up with the chickens, right, but and I don't it, know of a saying here. Well, it's just, you know, waking up with it, but it's so true. When After I got the chickens here, I, I always go to farms because I have a horse so I always horseback ride so I've always had that connection and loved having chickens um, in you know the farm so then one of my friends said why you love chickens so much and you have a backyard see if you're allowed to do it and if you are in your city you know you it's actually you can totally do that and I mean and so I, um, since I've had these chickens, it's just so amazing because it's what you're saying. There's this morning routine that has added. So I do the same thing. So I, I make tea and then I go downstairs with my tea and, you know, I say, I feed my chickens and they are running around my yard. And then I am barefoot and I sit under this tree that I completely adore and love and have had some of my best meditations under this tree. And as I'm drinking this tea and these leaves of the tea, or hundreds of years, they come from trees as well. Some of the meditations I've had, I literally felt like I was in and with the tree. Like I became 
tame the tree. And I've had communication and I've seen the trees change, like the leaves, you know, fall and and around the neighborhood too when it's winter that everything dies. And then it's just so amazing to see in the spring all the flowers coming up and, you know, being able to be outside and notice that. Like Mm -hmm. right now, I've been traveling a lot. So my chickens are actually not here. They're at my friend's farm. And I've noticed within a week that I've been in town, a difference that I'm not doing that part of my morning. And so, and I've noticed a huge shift in my whole day, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's just amazing when we take the time to pay attention to, to little things in life that really can change everything about you, you know, grounding is so important to put your feet on the earth, to Take a walk in nature. If you can't go to, you know, the woods or the mountains, go to City Park if you live in New Orleans or go to Audubon Park or wherever it is that you can get or in whatever city that you live, I'm sure that they have a park and you can go and explore and sit by a tree and take a deep breath, you know, and just enjoy. Um, I'm just going to mention and I'm going to ask you what you feel about this. This Yeah, I want to add one thing here. Um, you mentioned, you know, go to a park, but I could also um, argue that you could really just walk outside in your neighborhood. Yes. And I'll give you an example of something we've done. Um, yeah, thank you for saying that because yeah, I believe in that too. Absolutely. Yeah. At Loyola, I had a, um, a student a few years ago, Mallory, who's amazing, and she was the science teacher at an outreach after school and summer program. And she came to me one day and she said, you know, I need some ideas for some science. You know, we're doing all these things that they've done them before. I need something new. I said, well, do y'all ever just go outside? And she said, oh, no. I said, well, why don't you just take a walk in the neighborhood and let them pick up anything that they find without picking somebody's flowers, but have them pick up a leaf, have them pick up a snail, a roly-poly, and bring it back and just sit around outside and talk about it and look at it. So she did it, and she said that was amazing. And so what the a next cool time, exercise. Yeah, I mean, and it's so simple. You don't even have to know what the animals or the plants That's are. Right. It's just a matter of looking at them and understanding, or trying to understand, trying to figure out, trying to imagine, like the imagination part, what that organism does for water, what it does for food. You know, think about those things. Um, We do an outreach at Loyola that we call Late Nights at Loyola. And the same group of students come to us every year. And um, so we did this same activity with them on our campus. And instead of just sitting around and talking about it, which we did, of course, we, in addition to that, let them use our microscopes. And so they were able to see these things even closer. And, and then, of course, they wanted to look at their fingers and their fingerprints and their fingernails. And, and it just, it was amazing to see them discover something from a new perspective because their fingers have been with them since they were born, but they haven't ever looked at them in that way. Yeah. And those grass and the leaves, they haven't ever looked at it in that way. And that is important to, to learning. And then, of so course, important. it goes to your mind, it goes to your health, it goes to your to your well-being of your soul, really. Well, and as chi- as a child, if you can have that kind of contact with nature and really learn in that manner, then you also create an appreciation. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that you t- you are nature and that this is a part, this is your home. Yes. Versus like taking things for granted and just being here. Like you really begin to have this appreciation. And when you have an appreciation like that, when you're a child, it carries out through your life. 
you know, which is so important yep. that parents, especially now in this age and era that everything is computer and, you well, know, and the cell phones with and technology. Yeah, technology. Nature's free. Oh, go outside and just take a deep breath. It's yeah. free. Yeah. No <laughs> brain, no brainer like for, now. <laughs> for now. And I hope forever, yeah. but yeah. you're right. You know, those that could change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's scary when, when you think that, you know, maybe having even a small backyard might be impossible or something for the very wealthy or yeah. whatever. Like, I don't want that to ever be taken away from us. This is our birthright. But what I was going to say with um, the being outside too, this book that I'm reading now, and I'll tell you guys the name, it's called um, Your Guide to Forest Bathing. The author is Amos Clifford, talks about when you are, and I just got back from my Golden Sunrise Retreat, which we did a, some forest bathing, and we were in Oregon. It was amazing. We spent all this time outside. That to not even rush it, something like a hike is a hike. You go on a hike, and that's wonderful. It's also a great way to do it. But sometimes with forest bathing, it's actually like you go slow, you know? So it's just like you start walking wherever you're doing it, practicing it, and you just stop, and you literally look, which really reminds me of the exercise that we did that you guided us. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for us to share that, which was just to like, you know, take a deep breath. And the author says a lot of things we do fast and like hiking or power walking, but this is actually about like slowing down, taking a deep breath. And did you hear that bird? Or did you see that, you know, what's that sound? Is that a frog or that leaf? And then you start building this extra sense it's almost like a sense in itself besides our five senses and then you start like connecting and that's what it's all about too you know the integration will you share that exercise because I thought it was it was so simple and yet it was so powerful it's powerful so um I'll, I'll add again that my parents have been huge influences on my thinking throughout my life. And, um, you know, they've always taught me to be this independent thinker. Sometimes they probably wish that they hadn't, but they did. So, <laughs> so one thing that my, I've learned from my dad, um, through traveling abroad, we we travel and teach courses together in the tropics of Belize and Trinidad. This summer we're going to Brazil. We've been to Ecuador and the Very Amazon cool. and uh, the Galapagos islands. Um, but every time we go and we take students and, and just for us and just being immersed in that, Again, it's a perspective thing. We try to take a different perspective. So one exercise, and this is what you're talking about, that you can do in a habitat, it can be your house. It can be outside of your house in your backyard. It can be in a local park. It can be on your next vacation, wherever you are. Lie down, unplug, get to a place where it's just peaceful, where it's quiet. Allow yourself to relax and just look around. And just notice things from a different perspective. Notice what you hear. Notice what you see differently. The trees absolutely look different when you're lying down than they do when you're standing upright. Think about what your body's doing. Think about the release that you feel. And this is where your yoga and your meditation come in. The release that your body feels when you get in bed at night, same idea. Lie down and just relax and allow your mind to wander which is sometimes hard for us to do. Mm-hmm. And by wander, not wander to your next meeting, not wander to the next birthday party you have to take your child to, just allow it to explore 
what you're seeing. If there aren't trees around, look at the clouds. If there aren't clouds around, try to see birds or something that's flying around, insects that are around there. And just try to notice them from a different perspective. And notice if you see any patterns. As a scientist, as a natural history um, researcher, I look for patterns and trends in nature. So this is something that everyone can do. Notice things that are interesting, that are different, that are new to you, that are similar. Anything, really. Yeah. Thank you. Simple. That's yeah. awesome. And, and it's free. Yeah. <laughs> and when you when we did it um, at the Nature Institute, you know, a lot of the sounds that we were hearing, we most of us couldn't even say what it was. No, you knew, oh, this is a frog and this is this bird and that. Yeah. Because I guess you're... Well, my training. This, yes, You're trained. But I don't... I feel also that we should not lose that connection. Like, right. we should also be able to, to say, oh, yeah, that is a frog, and that is this bird or yeah. this... Well, one thing that we know, can do, for those of you who are lucky enough to still have grandparents, ask yeah. grandparents, you know, how they knew before the Weather Channel that there was a storm coming. How did they know <laughs> there was a storm coming? Did the frogs start calling all of a sudden? Did the trees, the leaves start blowing because there was this wind picking up, and that means there's this storm coming in? Just little things like that that we lose sight of. You actually can still ask those kinds of questions to your contemporaries, people our age, when you travel to other places Mm -hmm. like the tropics and and other places that we um, like to go because they still utilize some of those skills that they've just, you know, learned. They've they've had it passed down from generation to generation. We lose sight of that by being inside so much. And that is... Can we talk about Richard Louvre? Yes, I would love to. Okay. Yeah. Um, So the author Richard Louvre is someone I've read over the past couple of years for some research I'm doing. Yeah. And one of the the phrases that has resonated with me is uh, when he posed about nature deficit disorder. And uh, he um, wrote a national bestseller, Last Child in the Woods. I can't remember the exact year it came out, so I've got it in front of me. I'm going to um, it came out in 2005, so 13 years ago now. And he's had a couple of follow-ups, uh, The Nature Principle and a couple other books that, yeah. um, that I haven't read yet. But if you think about it, nature deficit disorder. Mm-hmm. We all have that now, essentially, mm-hmm. by not being out and immersing ourselves in nature. There are some people who are trying to link ADHD with this idea of us okay. being inside so much and this idea of us having rapid information when we, you know, we want something, we want it now. Let's, you know, I need it right now. And we can't be patient enough to wait for anything else. We're on to the next thing. We're trying to do three things at once. We're trying to study. We're trying to listen to music. We're trying to type an email to somebody. Yeah. All of those things have made us disconnected from nature. But the main thing is not being in nature. And that's, that's important. And so that is something that I get concerned with when I when I, you know, I see that term and I read about that because there are so many children, especially, you know, video games. If you're inside playing video games all the time or your iPad or a lot of us have a cell phone addiction Mm -hmm. because of Instagram and Facebook and internet or Google, Google everything. And so that takes you away from being, again, outside. So I'm I'm saying this because I know there's a lot of moms who listen to this and and again like you said we all have it. 
I know that since I started understanding that this was something that was happening, I started making more conscious choices. Okay, what can I do today outside or put my feet on the ground or go get some sunshine? Sun is just one of the most powerful, amazing yes. things. So in, in that is something that I feel, you know, be mindful of, of all of that because we do need to go outside. So plan a trip with the kids. Like here in New Orleans, we can, you know, you can go tubing in the river and it's amazing. You know, you can go kayaking. You can go in most places, you can find something like that to yes, do. Yes, definitely. So take the the kids, please, out of the screen, the televisions and the computers and, and, and all of us, let's be mindful with our phones because it can be a real addiction yeah, and, and I and let's see it be a honest, lot. It's easier for moms if their kids are occupied and they have that technology. I'm an aunt uh, um, yeah. and so I know that especially when my niece and nephews were younger, I would welcome them, you know, not asking me for this or that or crying or fighting and, and using their technology because it is easier and we have busy lives. But especially now that it's summertime and school is out and the, you know, we need to occupy more of their time, entertain them if you want to think of it like that. It's the perfect time to get into a routine of taking kids outside and unplugging and just putting them in the backyard and locking the door. I mean, I don't mean that in a, in a cruel right. way, but they will figure out what to do. At first, they're going to say, I'm bored. There's nothing to do out here. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they're going to figure it out. And that's the part that contributed, in, in my experience and so many of my colleagues, is the exploring part, using your imagination and creating things with dirt, grass, a mud pie. You know, something mm-hmm. as simple as a mud pie can be this incredible creation outside. Have you, I'm curious to ask you this, have you heard of the term EMF, Um, um, which is electromagnetic field? I do know about the electromagnetic field, but don't ask me any more about it. Okay. (laughs) No, enlighten me, please. So it's, I was recently listening to a podcast, actually a great podcast if anyone wants to check out with, uh, where Rich Roll interviews Dr. Frank Lipman. I'm a big fan of Dr. Frank Lipman, and you all can look him up. He's an MD, but he also works with Eastern and Western total body healing as well. And he mentioned, I mean, this is, this is the reason why I'm mentioning this is because I think I actually have it. And so there's, there's some people that are reporting that they have extra sensitivity to the electromagnetic field. So okay. being in, everywhere now that has Wi-Fi and the televisions, all the electronics, they will, you know, put that out and it messes up with your own electromagnetic field because uh-huh. we all have. So, and the way I see it from a spiritual perspective is that we have an orc, you know, we have an aura. We haven't. We all have an energy. Like our heart sure. has yes. a huge energy. It's like one of the. You can actually measure that. So, I think that that is interfering, and some people are just uh, reporting that they're extra sensitive about being around. If you're around your cell phone all day or the television, and some people are more than others, just like everything in life. Right. But you literally can get sick from it. Like you can get depleted to the point that some people are throwing up and not sleeping at night. Interesting. And what's interesting to me is that I've, I have extra, I, I had to take the TV. I used to have years ago a television in my room 
and I had to take that out. And, and now even at night, I have sometimes I do enjoy watching a good documentary and things like that. But I have to be very mindful of the time that I do it because um, and also how often I do it because I'm very sensitive to EMF. So it really has a f- affects my energy field. Even b- sometimes I have to put the cell phone away for a certain amount of hours or whatever it is. So I'm, it's something that I want to look more into and I want to research. And then the way that a fix, a quick fix for that is to go into nature. So if I go into a building and there's too much of that and I feel really depleted, I start feeling sick, almost like nauseous and and out of it. And then I go out and if I put my barefoot on the ground for 10 minutes and I sit outside by a tree, I immediately get my juice back. So, but there's a lot of people reporting this and it's really interesting because even the medical community has started to talk about it. And so I find it fascinating because myself, I've been feeling it and I've, I've been saying that I've had something to do. It had something to do with electronics for at least two, three years. And now there's all this research coming out recently. So it's just fascinating. So if you Google his name and EMF, will yeah. we find you, his you, podcast? Uh, yeah. If you go to uh, the Rich Roll podcast, he interviews uh, Dr. Frank Lip. And, okay. and he'll talk about it. But right. yeah, EMF, I think everybody can, if you want to find more about it, if you are feeling sensitive to electronics, go on, on Google and, you know, and you, there's a lot of interesting articles. Go on your electronics to find out more. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the irony of yep, it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so I have to ask you, um, you mentioned the Galapagos. Yes. Because I am so fascinated by the Galapagos. So tell us a little bit about it and and why do you love it? Wow. Um, It is just, it's an incredible place. And I started dreaming about the Galapagos when I was younger. Um, My dad actually took a group of people from New Orleans there, including Mignon Faget. Um, Mm. She produced one of her lines from inspiration from that trip. Um, And so I just always been fascinated by it. As a graduate student, I read Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, um, which is dense and uh, was difficult to get through. But the whole time I was reading about his experiences there, it just painted this incredible picture. So a couple of years ago, um, it just happened that we had an extra two weeks at Christmas. It's just the way our semesters fell. So my dad and uh, my colleague Frank and I decided we wanted to put a trip together and take students there. So we did. We also have a, a consortium and agreement with the Catholic University in um, Puse, the institutions called Puse in Quito, Ecuador. And so they have a field station in the Amazon called Yasuni. And it is in the western portion of the Amazon. There's that just one fun thing about it. There's more biodiversity of plants in that one little area than there is in all of North America. Wow. It's incredible. Um, and so we were able to go a week to the forest, the Amazon forest, which is absolutely incredible, and then a week to the Galapagos Islands. And the best way to experience it, in my opinion, is to charter a boat. And um, so you go from island to island. There's a couple of different itineraries you can choose, but it's incredibly regulated, which is great um, because they want to keep it pristine. You have to have a local naturalist with you so that they can tell you about everything, tell you where you can walk, where you cannot walk. Mm. You have to be off of the islands at a certain time each night with the exception of a few that are Mm. inhabited. So you would travel at night on the boat while you slept and then wake up on a new place. So 
the biodiversity there is absolutely incredible. From an evolutionary perspective, there's so much that we've learned about natural selection as a mechanism of evolution through Darwin's um, work and then you know subsequent studies that have been done and are being done out there on the bird species, on the turtles. It's the northernmost place that penguins go. There are the blue-footed boobies, so lots of um, species that are only found on those islands and only certain islands in some places. There's the flightless cormorant. We have cormorant birds here. Um, We see them a lot. They're associated with water. The flightless cormorants have these uh, vestigial or, or remnants of a wing. So they walk and they can swim in the water, but they can't fly. It's just Aww. incredible. I mean, so picture like a penguin's wing. They're, they're, they're birds that have a carina. They're flight birds, but they use their breast and their muscles in their breast to swim um, instead of fly because they can't yeah. support their bodies. And it's, all, just incredible. It's, it's amazing. And it's ultra protected, right? It is protected, absolutely. So you pay, it's, it's an expensive trip, yeah. I'll say that, because know that. you're contributing to, you're offsetting your carbons mm-hmm. and carbon dioxide emissions and everything. You're, you're paying uh, the naturalist, you're paying a fee to go because it's a national um, park. So you're paying the Ecuadorian government for that. So there's lots of things that, you know, that you're paying for, but it is worth every penny if you have to save up, take out a loan. If you're interested, remotely interested in a trip like that, you have to go. Yeah, it's, it just looks like incredible. Yes. I mean, seeing the, the Galapagos turtles in their native habitat, and, um, and there are lots of conservation um, yeah. and restoration programs going on there where they are the, the population of the turtles is increasing again. Um, I was just going to ask awesome. you that. Did you get to see those Im- oh, enormous turtles? Incredible, oh, yes. Wow. How old the, are they? Uh, some of them are over 100 years old. Yeah. Um, so the... the um, Lonesome George is is gone now. He was, you know, reportedly the oldest of his subspecies, but there are lots of them and uh, they're incredible when you watch them. And and one thing that you can learn about them is that some of them on on islands have um, this raised portion of their carapace, so the back portion of their of their um, shell, and so it is. Uh, they're called the saddlebacks, and so it's raised up. And the thinking is that they are have adapted uh, for eating things, shrubs, and other things that are off the ground, as opposed to the dome shaped turtles that are just oh. as big and on different islands eat. Forbs and and small uh, grasses and things like that that are on the ground. It's really incredible when you look at it and you see the habitat and it makes perfect sense. It's just it a lot of things that you study in biology come to light mm-hmm. when you go there and that's incredible. We haven't even talked about your work with the spiders. No, and we I haven't. know we're have just a little bit of more time. Okay. Do you want to just kind of mention it cuz I find that sure. so fascinating. Sure. So um one of the things that that we do with um our spider research just in general is ask some basic natural history questions. So we've done some research in Belize over the past couple of years. We've done some work in Ecuador, but I'll talk about what we're doing locally. So my students and I finished a project last year on in Jean Lafitte National Park, which is a local park here. Um, fun fact, the only national park named after a pirate or a thief who was a pirate. It's kind of fun. Yeah. But we were interested in knowing basically who's here. 
what spider communities exist in our area. Um, and that's because the research is, the, the literature is that basic on some of these topics within the spider world, you know, of research. So we, we finished that and got some really good information. Of course, we asked other questions as well, but the, what, you know, the natural history aspect of it is what spiders are there? What, what areas are they occupying? Are they on the ground? Are they building webs? Are they up in the tree canopy? Are they living inside of things? And we're finding all kinds of neat outcomes from this. Um, two things that I'll note that are interesting that have come out of this work. I walked out of my, this is not part of the study, just a, a serendipitous okay. event. I walked out of my back door last July and I had a cooler that I hadn't put back up in into my um, into my storage unit. And there was a spider sitting inside of, you know, the, the coolers that have a, a, a cup holder sitting in there. So that it was a white lid. So this brownish spider really stood out. So I looked at it and being, you know, the, the thinker, the, the way in which I think, I thought, hmm, that looks like a huntsman spider. But it doesn't look like a huntsman spider because of the way the legs are positioned. So I went through all these things in my mind and of what it looks like, what it could be, what it isn't because of this and that and the other. And then I came to realize this is, this is a, a, a spider that I've only read about. I've never seen it here. I've never seen it in the tropics. Come to find out, my students and I did some, some searching, and they did a lot of the work on this to find that, in fact, it was a species that nobody's reported in New Orleans before. It's a, a flatty spider, mm-hmm. and the genus is Selenops. So my student, Shannon, found— yeah, How did it get here? Okay, well, that's <laughs> a great—let let me, let me tell you yeah, first how we yeah, figured yeah. out what it is, because this is the fu- a fun part of the story, and this is why working with university students, to me, is so thrilling. She was working and being mentored by um, a student who had just graduated, Michael, and so together, they just started researching the literature. And so that's one of the skills that I hope that they learn as undergraduates so that they can parlay that into their graduate work or or their careers. So they started researching and they found that there is one person who's considered the authority on Selenops, the genus. She did a revision of the genus a couple of years ago. And uh, so they located her at the California Academy of Sciences. Her name is Sarah Cruz. So we contacted her and she said, oh my gosh, it's got to be this because of that and this and that and the other. And she said, send it to me. I'll do the molecular analysis on it, which is something I don't do. And so we collaborated. And so, so my cool. student got to experience the, fi- the, you know, the literature search. Um, she got to experience the collaboration with another scientist, happened to be a female, which is always interesting for you know, young female budding yeah. scientists. So in fact, once we did the molecular work, this was the first reported case of this species, um, Selenops submaculosis. And so we have a publication that just came out in Southeastern Naturalist, so a scientific journal. So my undergraduate has her first publication as wow. a rising junior in college. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it's just incredible. So that was a fun discovery. And you asked um, how we yeah. uh, how it got here. So what I did after I found out what species it was, so about last fall, uh, well, I continued to look in my yard, of course. So then what I did was I got on our neighborhood website next door and I started doing some crowdsourcing. And I said, you know, I'm a scientist at Loyola and I found the spider at my house. I'm your neighbor. And I told them the whole story about it. I said, so if you see anything that looks like this, please call me. And of course, I got all these replies of, oh, any good spider's a dead spider. Oh, I kill all the spiders I see. So I tried to do my 
you know, education yeah, 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 yeah. part of it. But a lot of people were very receptive and they said, absolutely, we'll call you. And um, it looks big and scary. And I said, well, it's big, but it's not really scary. It's not going to hurt you or anything. Um, but so far, no one has seen one. Okay. So our best guess is that it came in on a plant. And huh. so one of the questions that this scientist in California asked is, had I done any landscaping recently or had any of my neighbors? Okay. And, um, and, and no one had recently except the usual landscaping of, you know, replacing annuals and things like that. So we really don't know where it came from. But the fact that it was an adult is interesting, and I continue to look for them. So maybe we'll find more and we can learn more about it. But for now, that's what the literature tells us, that there was this one individual that was found here. Another cool story about a find, um, I was contacted last year by a scientist in Georgia who was looking for a net casting spider. So all of you at home listening, look up net casting spider. The genus name is uh, Dinopus, and the species we have here is Dinopus spinosus. So it's D-E-I-N-O-P-U-S, Dinopus. This spider is incredible. I've seen it a lot in the tropics. What it does is it, it constructs a web, as many spiders do, but what it does is it hangs from its back two pair of legs upside down vertically at nighttime and its front two pair of legs hold a web that is a net. So imagine casting out for bait fish. You know how you take your net, it's small, you throw it out, it opens, and then it goes around your bait fish and you pull it in and you get your bait fish. That's called cast casting for bait. I guess that's the official term, I don't really know. But So this spider does the same idea. It has a net casting web. So what happens when insects fly near it at night, it senses their vibrations. I'm sure it senses their pheromones and other things as well. And it directionally points toward the prey, grabs it in its net, wraps it up, and then injects its venom so that it can eat it. it. Wow. So this scientist contacted me because he was doing some work on them. And he said, have you ever seen these in Louisiana or Mississippi? And I said, no, but I look for them all the time. Um, So last fall, I I taught an entomology class. And so I I had my students go with me to Mississippi. I used to be a faculty member at Southern Miss. Mm -hmm. And so there's an environmental center there and they invite me every fall to come do a spider walk. Of course, it's at night. So we went there and my students were collecting insects. And on the spider walk, Five minutes into the walk, I find a net casting spider, Mm. and I had looked for years. So I collected it immediately, taught everybody about it, and sent it to this scientist. And we, again, got a publication, just came out this past month in Southeastern Naturalist, about the occurrence of this species in Southeast United States. Wow. That's so so cool. We don't know how... So this is the importance of observation. We have no idea how long they've been here. Have they been here and we just didn't recognize them? Did we not notice them? Did we not know? So now that we have this baseline, essentially, information, Mm -hmm. the more and more we learn about them and find them, let's say we continue to, to just to make the connection with climate change, as it gets warmer in the United States and around around the world... Are these spiders going to migrate further north because they can tolerate the change in the temp, or are they going to stay tropical, subtropical like they're found right now? We don't know. Yeah. But it's interesting now that we know that they're in the southeastern U.S. Yeah, and that goes to show you that's how everything starts changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With one little change somewhere else could be, you know, a ripple effect of a change there, and then that change, and that's how 
the organism. It's fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Your job is quite fascinating. Oh my gosh, it's just fun. And you know the cool thing at there there. The academic freedom they afford me at Loyola is incredible because I'm able to do the research I want to do and incorporate my students. My students do the work with me because we don't have graduate students. Our institution in biology is simply undergrads at this point. So these undergraduates are getting the experiences that a lot of graduate students get at, at big research institutions. Yeah. So coming to a you know, smaller liberal arts um, institution with a strong science department is incredibly awesome. beneficial for our students because they get to have publications as undergraduates. My student that's at, that I mentioned, Michael, who's in Cambridge right now, he got a full ride scholarship to Cambridge. He's incredible anyway, um, but, but he did research as an undergrad and I treated him and he acted like a graduate student. That's amazing. And so they knew, oh, you don't need to get a master's. Let's go straight into your PhD. That's awesome. It's incredible. So what is, for someone listening, if they feel inspired and they want to pursue this, what is, um, it would be a biology major? Like, what would they, they enroll can, they, they can get as creative as they want. So I've worked with students who were, they wanted to go into medicine and they wanted to study history. So I had one student years ago at Southern Miss who um, changed his major to history because he wanted to study that, but still did work in biology and still got into med school and is now a mm-hmm. physician. I have a student that I just talked to this week who went with me to Belize her sophomore year of college, and she and another student told me at the end of that trip, they said, we're doing our our research for honors with you, and we're coming back to Belize next year to do it on spiders. And I said, okay. And we did. We made it happen. And so they ended up writing their honors thesis for their honors program. They graduated with honors. One of them is about to start her residency as a DO, and the other one is working for uh, Mar Alliance, studying sharks and turtles and and things like that out of Panama. But I just noticed on um, Instagram today, she's in Brazil doing some work. (laughs) So, I mean, those are just, those are three examples right there of incredible things. But I have students that um, at Loyola, we have the environment program. They can get a degree in environmental biology. They can get a degree in environmental science. They can get a biology degree, really anything. And they could do research in what they're interested in doing research in. And it's about the process. It's about if you don't want to make a career out of spiders, you can still go through the thinking process of doing science and gain so many skills and techniques and we haven't even mentioned statistics. I mean, that's a, a, a skill that you can take and use in so many different professions. And you gain that skill by doing research. Yeah. And I'm going to throw something even in there. If I would love for um, you and y- your colleagues to consider maybe doing some outreach in terms of creating a a program that someone who's not in college or not, you know, someone like me could join, even if it's for, you know, a few weeks or whatever it is, like something something. fun (laughs) like that. Yeah. So share two things. Okay. One thing we have, we've established in the past couple of years. And one thing is in the works, the one in the works, I can't talk about too much because it's in the works, but I'll tell you just a little bit. You'll let me know when it comes out. Absolutely. So the thing that we established, my dad actually- I'll know um, the secret. Okay. (laughs) He organized, he gathered a bunch of people in the local area who are scientists and working in um, different entities like uh, industry, like wildlife and fisheries, you know, work for the government, sewage and water board, different outreach organizations, um, University of New Orleans, 
got everybody together with an interest in natural history, and we created the Louisiana Master Naturalist Organization in the state. They did. Uh, Then we created locally the Louisiana Master Naturalist of Greater New Orleans chapter. And so it is offered, it's a course, it's offered twice a year, once in the spring um, on Saturdays and once no, I'm sorry, is it Saturdays? Yes, once in the spring on Saturdays, once in the fall on Fridays. So people who work on Saturdays or Fridays, they can figure out which group which they want to join. And they have 12 workshops that take them to different places around the greater New Orleans area, and they learn about the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes you spend like an hour or two inside a classroom learning like you would in college from like a lecture or something yeah. like that. And then you go outside with your binoculars, with your forceps, with your magnifying lens, and you're with people who know what they are wow. seeing and hearing, and they teach it to you. And, and people take notes. They journal about it. That and sounds amazing. There's about 25 people in each group. So we've had, a, I, I'm estimating probably 500 or so people since 2012 go through, wow. go through the program. What's um, it called again? It's called Louisiana Master Naturalist of Greater New Orleans. There's a Baton Rouge chapter. There's a Lafayette chapter. There's some chapters in Alexandria, uh, North Louisiana, so all over the state. And, and for those of you not in Louisiana, there's a really well-established Texas Master Naturalist, a Florida Master Naturalist. There's a Georgia Master Naturalist, and I'm just naming a few in the Southeast, but they're yeah. all over the country. Wow. Um, there's one in Mississippi that's pretty small, but I think they have a, um, a yearly cohort that goes through. That's awesome. So if somebody wants to join it, just yep. message them, email them. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I'll give my email address is akthomas at L-O-Y-N-O, that's short for Loyola New Orleans, dot edu, and I can get you information or you can simply Google Louisiana Master Naturalist. And you can find out information from our website um, on how to get involved in that program. So that's one thing we've already established, and there's a waiting list, so you need to look into it and and get on that waiting list. But we welcome everyone who's interested in nature to that program. That's amazing. I really... um I think it's fantastic yeah. that you guys are doing that. And well, I think it's fantastic, all the work that you're doing. We love it. So, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, and then Loyola is going to come do some things in the future. Um, yeah. So this Master Naturalist is based out of Loyola, um, but it's a, a state and a local organization. And then we're going to have some other things for adults who are interested in learning more about nature. We need um, that. So that is going to be coming soon, but yeah. no details yet. Okay. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy because I feel we really need it. There's, and especially now that we're becoming more conscious. Yes, there's all these other things that we spoke about that are, you know, concerning for the environment, but we're also becoming more conscious. Yes. And, and there's many of us who we're in this um, returning to nature and trying to really raise the bar with this movement. And Agreed. so all of these programs are going to be so significant for from anywhere from children to, you know, adolescents to a young adult to older to adults to older people, like all age groups. This is something that we can all benefit. Yeah. So and, I'm and excited even, about I mean, that. And in every city, there are movements going on. But New Orleans, it's one of the reasons I was excited to come back home and I wanted okay. to come back home was because of all the work um, with the environment and engaging people in the environment that is going on in our city. It's wow. incredible. And I'm glad you said that because a lot of times when we think of New Orleans, especially from other places, we don't think of that. You know, even me, I travel a lot in this. Oh, yeah, but there's so much 
um, the festivals and the party. It's so much party in New yes. Orleans and carnival. And I'm like, yes, we have all that. But we also have some, you know, ridiculous things that are just, like you said, all these mm-hmm. amazing programs. I mean, I, I, I have a kayak and I drive... Um, past Folsom, you know, to the park, the national park yeah. there and Bogachita Park. Bogachita. And it's just, it's insane. It's and, and it's like an hour and a half. I just finished you know, teaching a two week um, mini session course to students that was called Naturally Nolens Exploring the Wetlands. And every day we went to a different place around Lake Pontchartrain Basin so they could explore it. And, you know, for me, you've that was, I was like, really? I'm getting paid for this? You know, this is my job. Um, but the students loved it. They're like, we had no idea all this stuff was here. And it's true. You can just drive a short distance mm-hmm. or just walk outside. I mean, going yeah. back to what we said earlier, yeah. it's incredible what you can learn it's, just by It's incredible. Looking. I share, when I share my studio, I'm coming back from, yeah, I just went horseback riding for the weekend or kayaking or two. And they're like, where do you go? And, and say, oh my God, I didn't know that all this was here yes. I'm like yeah it's not it's it's all around us it's yep. just so I love that too and I think Audubon also has a really beautiful institution altogether yes. with the different programs they have uh, going on and that's another thing a lot of times when you say Audubon people think of like just the zoo the aquarium but there's all these behind the scenes yes, things happening with um, even uh, um, insectarium you know, yeah insectarium and and animals that are in extinction mm-hmm. that they're doing programs with that so I find all of that fascinating is there anything else you want to add? I would just say that, you know, it's don't get overwhelmed with making a change and making a difference. Little things add up and just bringing awareness to anything in your life that's going to make you happier and healthier and get your mind right. It's worth doing. You're worth it. And you have to know that and think about that. And why not start with nature? It's easy, it's available, and she's waiting for you. That is beautiful, and it's a great way to end. Thank you, Amy. All it right. was so amazing. This was and fun. so they get in touch with you via your email that, that you perfect. gave, and that's perfect. Thank you, guys. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed Amy Thomas. She's awesome, right? Go outside and enjoy nature. So much to explore in this beautiful world. Today's episode, I'll leave you with some ideas. Plant a garden, even if a small one. Have plants inside your home and fresh flowers. Commit to 20 minutes of sunshine per day. Be cell phone free for at least one hour each day. And that means turn it off. Put your cell phones away at night before you sleep. Turn it off on airplane mode. Keep it far away from your bed. Limit EMF, electromagnetic field exposure for at least one to two hours before bedtime, if not more. Be TV, computer, cell phone free during this time. Read a great book. Go outside barefoot on the grass. Feel the earth beneath your feet and let the sun shine on your face. Aime walks around her backyard barefoot each morning with coffee as she checks on her turtles and her birds. I sit under my tree drinking tea as I gaze and watch my chickens run around and the other animals. What is it that you can do in your life to raise the frequency and vibration for you each day? Nature is the master healer of it all. Nature is your birthright. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. 
Thank you for joining the show. If you enjoy it, please consider sharing this episode with your friends. We greatly appreciate if you donate to the show. Remember that your donation goes a long way with allowing us to create better content and more content for life on earth. This podcast is reaching listeners all over the globe. It is a true blessing to be able to contribute to a better life on earth for all beings. Consider becoming a patron of Life on Earth. Go to patron.com slash I'll include the link on show notes for you. Again, greatly appreciate it. Take a moment and help us out by subscribing to the show and leaving us a great review on iTunes. Remember, you are amazing. The world needs you. I feel blessed to share the energy while on this planet with you. Much love. Bye-bye.